be with you. Thank you. Um, like I said before, my name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. And today we are continuing our series through the book of Exodus. So the story of Exodus is foundational to the story of the Bible. It's the story of Israel's divinely orchestrated deliverance from slavery for the purpose of serving as God's chosen priestly kingdom so that the nations would be blessed. It reveals for all God's people, both then and today, what it means to be redeemed by God and what it means to worship and serve him. So as Drew said last week, number one, the Exodus story is our story. It's not just some story of some removed ancient civilization. It's the history of God's people. And number two, the Exodus is for our instruction. The Bible invites us to apply this very narrative directly to our lives as 21st century Christians. So when we left off last week, Moses was in the middle of his second personal exodus. He killed an Egyptian to save an Israelite, and he fled into the wilderness. He sits down by a well in the land of Midian. And at that well, he protects this group of seven women who come to water their sheep at the well. He fends off this group of aggressive shepherds, and he waters the women's sheep. And this is important because it foreshadows the kind of shepherding that he will do when he returns to Egypt. Because when he comes back to Egypt, Moses is going to fend off Pharaoh, and he's going to guard Israel, and then he's going to lead Israel, God's sheep, out into the wilderness to be fed by God. So God is fashioning Moses into an exodus-shaped person. He is building towards a primary exodus with these series of smaller deliverances that are increasing in intensity. God is building Moses' confidence for the future because it's through Moses, whose name means to draw out, that God will draw out his people. So as we pick back up in chapter 2, verse 23, it's a bleak scene. Israel has been enslaved for many years in Egypt. They are groaning they're in pain, they're crying for deliverance. So let's, let's read that verse again in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So what were God's covenant promises? that he was remembering. They were the same covenant promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So just to give us a high-level view of this, you can look at this in Genesis 17 and Genesis 26. It's a little bit more annotated, but just for the sake of time, let's, let's go over what he promised. So first, he promised to give them offspring, to give them descendants, to increase their numbers. And God had already made Israel at this time numerous. I mean, it says in the text that they outnumbered the Egyptians by quite a lot. But his promise was, not, was to one day make them not just numerous, but a great nation. Not just many, but strong. Secondly, God promised to give Israel a land where they could live and grow. A promised land where they would thrive. And third, he promised to bless them in such a way 
that they would be a blessing. Now at that moment, Israel most assuredly was oppressed in slavery, but God's intention was always to bless them in a way that they would not only flourish themselves, but that the rest of the world would flourish through them. God's covenant promises were to give his people descendants, a land, and blessing. And even though Israel is oppressed, God hears and responds. Let's read this again. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. God's remembering is not an accidental recollection. The groaning of Israel, the promises of his covenant, the sufferings of his people, these are not things that just occur to him. He is not an absentee landlord or a neglectful parent. God has always been with his people. He has never left them. If you remember back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham that his descendants would be afflicted in a foreign land for 400 years. So this, this slavery in Egypt is part of God's plan for Israel because it sets the stage for a wonderful deliverance. God is taking deliberate action in light of his covenant promises, the same promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob God is not remembering his promises because he's forgetful. He's remembering his promises because he is faithful. He's also not carrying out a plan coldly or mechanically. He responds to the groaning and cries of his people. He sees and knows their affliction. This groaning and crying is a broken-hearted grief. Their cries are for help and relief. Now later, even though they're Groaning now, later in chapters 15 through 17, as we'll see in the coming weeks, once Israel is free from bondage, they will be disciplined for grumbling. And there's a critical difference here that we need to note. Groaning is not grumbling, and grumbling is not groaning. They can seem similar, but biblically they are quite different. Both are responses to suffering, but their source and their direction is very different. Groaning is a response to the weight of suffering and it is directed toward God as an honest expression of pain and sorrow and grief. Grumbling also reflects the weight of suffering, but it springs from anger and resentment toward God. Grumbling lacks the memory of his historical faithfulness. Groaning expresses an element of hope in God despite current sufferings, but grumbling reflects a lack of hope and faith and is accompanied by a sense of doom. In the Bible, we see that God responds to groaning with mercy and he responds to grumbling with anger and discipline. Still, even in light of this, when we grumble, there is hope. Though we are quick to grumble, our God is slow to anger. He does not forget his promises, and even in his discipline, his goal is to draw his people to him in grace and pardon. So Sojourn, when we groan, we're gonna learn how to do it without grumbling, trusting in his faithfulness. 
trusting in him and his promises. Let's keep reading. This is verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock out to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So this is the scene. This is a normal day. Moses is doing his daily duty as a shepherd in the wilderness, and he comes upon a burning bush. The great I am, the God of the God of the creator of heavens and the earth, doesn't reveal himself to Moses when he's praying or when he's meditating or in spiritual thought. He comes to him when he's doing his work alone. It's very unexpected. Now, the narrative does not explicitly tell us what it means that the burning bush is not consumed, but I will submit this. The Bible often likens Israel to bushes, to trees, to vines, and it often likens God's presence to fire. So the fact that the bush is filled with fire and yet not consumed may be a symbol of Yahweh in the midst of Israel. Also to note, when God's fire, when God's presence is around, it's either to destroy or to purify. So could it be possibly that the fire here will, is the fire that will consume Egypt but will purify Israel? And not only purify Israel, but give light to the nations. Now, while this is important, what I really want to draw our attention to is this idea of holy ground. The bush is planted on holy ground, Yahweh tells Moses. And God's presence is what makes the ground holy. It's important because the ground has been cursed, if you remember, all the way back to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve failed to protect the garden and the curse of sin entered the world, part of that corruption was that God cursed the ground. But God is going to give Israel a land where they can be priests for the whole world. And he will be present with them, which means that wherever he is with his people, that land will be holy. It will become blessed and no longer cursed. Let's keep reading. Verse seven, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out to Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
So again, keep this in mind. The ground has been cursed since Genesis 3. But God has made a covenant with Abraham. He has promised descendants, a land, and international worldwide blessing. God has given Abraham descendants, and in verses 7 through 12 here, we see God promises to give them the land. Why? For what purpose? So that they will be a blessing to the rest of the nations. God's purpose for giving them land and numbers is that they would be a blessing to the whole world. So he promises to bring them from the, to the promised land, this place of perpetual springtime and provision. And so these same covenant promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are now being extended to Israel. So God commissions Moses and tells him, go get my people and come back. Let's rendezvous on this mountain. And just so it's clear, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb are the same mountain with different names, much like we would say that New York City and the Big Apple are the same city, just different names. And God assures Moses that this will be the sign that the great I am has sent him and will keep his promises. This is the sign that they will be successful in returning to the mountain to worship God and to serve him. So Moses meets with God on a mountain here in Exodus 3, and as we will see in Exodus 19, Moses will come to this very same mountain with all the people of Israel, and the similarities are striking. Both of these chapters, both of these visits to the mountain, they involve holy ground and an invitation to come close but not too close. They both have the presence of fire and miraculous signs. And in chapter 3, the fire fills the bush. In chapter 19, the fire descends on the mountain. Both cause Moses to hide his face because he's, he's in the presence of divinity. This is the bush and the mountain at this time. These are the holy of holies because this is where God's presence is. In chapter 3, Moses is called to act in the name of Yahweh. But in chapter 19, all of Israel is called to act in the name of Yahweh. In chapter 3, Moses is called to deliver people from slavery in Egypt for the purpose of chapter 19 of serving as God's chosen priestly kingdom in the midst of the nations. Israel's return to Mount Sinai is important because from now until they return, God is going to show them that he is the God that has truly blessed them but when they get back to the mountain, he's going to teach them how to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. So it begs the question, what about God's law is a blessing to his people and to the rest of the world? Well, just from a high level, Israel's civil law that was given by God was equitable and wise. It was unlike any other law that any other nation had known or lived in ever. The nations of the world are going to come and look to Israel for wisdom in forming their healthy societies. Also, Israel's ceremonial law, how they communed, how they transacted with, how they worshiped the Lord, was also unlike any other. People didn't know how to commune with the Lord in every other nation. God was positioning Israel to be the world's intermediary. Israel would know how to deal with sin because of what God gave them in the law. So as a result, 
Israel is going to become the locus of God's presence on the earth. The nations of the world are going to come to the holy ground of Israel's temple, the house of prayer for all nations, to meet with God, to worship him, to commune with him, to know him, and to have their sin dealt with. There's an example of this in the Old Testament that illustrates this point. It's in 1 Kings which is a book in the Old, Old Testament before Jesus came. But it's, it's in the book of 1 Kings in chapter 10 that Solomon is on the throne in Israel, and God has given Israel all that he promised to Abraham. Reports of, his, of wisdom and prosperity of Israel are spreading throughout the world, and a Gentile queen comes to see it for herself. A, a person outside of Israel comes to see it for themselves the queen of Sheba. She's coming in need of wisdom, and she comes to see firsthand all that God has given. Let's read what she says. The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Israel is delivered from slavery for the purpose of serving as God's chosen priestly kingdoms, kingdom so the nations would be blessed. It was true for Israel. The same is true for the church. The same is true for us today. As God's chosen priestly kingdom, we, the church, the church in Houston, the church in the United States, we should be groaning for the nations We ought to groan until every nation is discipled and all of creation is restored. Let's read from Romans 8 in light of this. This is in verse 18. Paul's writing, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. At the end of Exodus 2, we see God responding to Israel's groaning by delivering them. In Romans 8, all of creation is still groaning, still in bondage, still under the curse of Genesis 3. We We are still groaning. Our world is still groaning. But thanks be to God that he has delivered us in Jesus. Jesus who was the greater Moses, 
who is the greater Moses, who came into our bondage of sin and death and drew us out as his people through his own life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And that has made us sojourn. That has made us the church, not just sojourn, but the church, a great nation. He has made us children of Abraham. He has given us the covenant promises. And miraculously, he is still giving those covenant promises to us. He has given Abraham descendants beyond his wildest dreams. And every nation of the world is finding a common patriarch in Abraham. God is in the process of giving us a land in which to prosper, except that holy land will one day cover the entire planet. And through us, his kingdom of priests, the world will be blessed. But for now, creation remains in bondage. But by God's grace, he is delivering the rest of creation through us. By the work of the Son, the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the triune God has invited the church into the midst of this to create this worldwide blessing? This is huge. Just as God delivered Israel for the purpose of serving him amidst the nations, God delivers the church for the purpose of serving him amidst the nations. And through the Holy Spirit, God has made us his I love this from Psalm 104. He's made us his ministers of flaming fire. It's the same fire that pushed back the darkness in that Midian night on that mountain. It's the same fire that pushed back darkness on the mountain. That same fire becomes the fire that pushes back darkness in the sanctuary. And we who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit will be used to push back darkness in this age of history as we make disciples, multiply parishes, plant churches. Do you know that we don't do that just to make our name great? God is slowly but surely turning all of creation into holy ground. He is present with us. He will be with us, and so wherever we go, his presence goes. So practically, just practically, what that means is that when we come into this sanctuary on Sunday mornings, when we visit a parish gathering, when a new parish is planted, when a new church is planted, when we share a meal with neighbors, with friends, with coworkers, with family at our table, God is making that place into holy ground. It means that whenever we do anything in the name of Jesus, that place is being made into holy ground. So in the name of Jesus, we serve at the forge, holy ground. In the name of Jesus, we share the gospel with people in Italy and East End, holy ground. In the name of Jesus, we invite neighbors and coworkers to our tables at our homes and share meals with them, holy ground. God's promise is that through the church, this kingdom of priests, everything will be set free from bondage. God has heard creation's groaning. He's bringing the delivering through us. Again, through the work of Christ by the power of the Spirit. He is forming us into an Exodus-shaped people as well. In Romans 8, it's not just creation that's groaning because even though we have been liberated, we are 
still groaning, as Paul says. We're still longing for the full restoration of all things. And as we will see in the coming weeks, after Israel was set free from bondage in Egypt, they entered into the wilderness, and this is what happened. They stopped groaning, and they started grumbling. They went from grateful to ungrateful. Rather than groaning for the unblessed nations, they groaned that they were no longer in Egypt. They grumbled that they were no longer in Egypt. And worse than that, they eventually began celebrating their own privilege before God over and above the godless nations as if they were the city on a hill and everyone else was in the dark. Poor them. Much like Scrooge McDuck, (laughs) they started basking in their prosperity and privilege rather than stewarding those things for the blessing of the nations. And Israel was privileged. That's not the bad thing. The bad thing is not that they were privileged. God intended to, always intended to bless them, and he did bless them. But it was purposed to serve God and serve others. And that's exactly what they failed to do. So Sojourn, what does that look like for us? What does it look like for us to groan instead of grumble? How can we be faithful to follow God around the mountain in our 40 years? This isn't an exhaustive list, but maybe it's just some places to start because I know this can get really specific. But I think instead of grumbling about our nation and our government, we groan and plead for God's kingdom to come into our nation and government. Instead of grumbling about our extended families, we groan and pray for their salvation and sanctification. Instead of grumbling about our bosses, we groan and ask for God to bless them. Instead of grumbling about the season of life that God has us in, we groan and pray that we might be content where he has placed us and to know his presence even more. Instead of grumbling about our kids, we groan and ask for their growth, their maturation in the knowledge and fear of God. And I know I'm I'm not speaking for myself, I'm probably not speaking for myself, but I know that everyone would rather be part of a groaning community rather than a grumbling one. We don't have to be a walking YouTube comment page to be holy. And I think what this does is in all this groaning, we have to see that every prayer that we offer is offered within the triune fellowship. Because indwelt by the Spirit, we call out to the Father in the same words that Jesus used in prayer. Here, the Spirit intercedes for us. Apparently, according to Paul, transforming our inarticulate anguish into petitions to the Father through the Son. So prayer is bound up with, and it's a means for the birthing of this new creation that Paul says is that, that the world is in, is, is in pain for. That means that prayer is the labor pains of the church. Prayer is not a retreat into the history of redemption, into some private 
delicacies of communion. It, prayer is an instrument by which the Father renews the world through His sons and daughters who are in the Son and who have received the Spirit. So come to the Sunday gathering. Let's come to the Sunday gathering, lifting up our voices to praise the God who has brought us out of darkness into marvelous light. Let's come to the prayer gatherings to groan and plead for the lost and the hurting and the poor, the widow and the orphan. Let's come to our parish gatherings and groan for our neighborhood, that the kingdom of God would come into our neighborhood. Let's come to all of these things knowing that God has extended his covenant promises to us and has made us kingly priests in and to our world and our prayers availeth much. When the church asks God for something, he in his time, he gives it. So everything that we're called to be and to do serves this purpose. The whole creation is longing for an exodus, groaning under the burdens imposed on it by sin and death, waiting for a new Moses to lead it out of corruption for good. Israel's liberation was a change of lordship. So is the liberation of the creation. Everything as the creation is given into the care of Jesus and his body. One day grumbling will cease and our groaning will give way to the new creation. One day, the whole earth will be holy ground. One day, all the sons of God will be revealed and will rule creation with Christ. And one day, the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let us pray.